He this is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. We hear a lot these days about people losing trust in the news all over the world. It's something the media here say they're worried about too. Last year, the biggest annual survey of Kiwis' trust in news found it was on the slide, though exactly why wasn't so clear. Since then, there's been plenty of anti-media sentiment at anti-government and anti-COVID protests and record levels of online misinformation misleading ever more people. So what does the latest survey of our trusted news reveal? That's coming up. But first, there have been stacks of stories in our media lately about planes, trains and automobiles and the eye-watering costs of catering for them all. But how do our media handle the harder-to-quantify cost to our environment and the urgent need to change our ways? It's the best road in the country, by so, miles. So, Peter, you were the first person on Transmission Gully at 1.24 this morning. Were there other people there queuing up as well? I was on the outside lane, so when we got into the merge lane at the, at the end, I was able to pull away, and, <laughs> yep, I did it before that. That was Peter on Thursday last week telling News Talk ZB just how keen he was to be the first person on the virgin tar seal of Transmission Gully, the brand-new but long-awaited motorway north of Wellington. But the day before that, reporters had already had a run on the road before the public, and most of them seemed just as impressed. Just fabulous was the headline on RNZ's story, quoting Porirua Mayor Anita Baker, and the accompanying video had fancy drone footage of the new motorway and the ribbon-cutting Prime Minister, all set to a soundtrack that was more Ibiza 2002 than Kapiti Coast 2022. We have a pathway that will be used by generations to come. Jacinda Ardern went on to say projects like this will help reconnect New Zealanders and reduce emissions. But will generations to come look back on that day as one that really helped us go carbon neutral by 2050? We'll come back to that. For decades, Wellington's daily papers have hammered Waka Kotahi, the government and Transmission Gully's builders over the blown deadlines and blown budgets. But while they were pretty excited that the road was open at last this week, Christchurch-based ZB host Simon Barnett was not. $1.2 billion for Transmission Gully. Stuff reported this morning that they did a test. They did the old State Highway 1 in a vehicle, they did the new Transmission Gully in a vehicle, and then somebody else took the train. Mm-hmm. And Transmission Gully saved them three minutes. It was faster, but only by three minutes. Waka Kotahi put it at a 12-minute saving, as you mentioned before. Yeah. $1.2 billion. Is that money well spent? And the mere suggestion that the billion-dollar bill might not be worth it fired up his ZB listeners, including armchair engineers and project managers like George, who ran the numbers on the millions of dollars per metre cost of a whole host of roading projects. We're at the bottom of the heap. I reckon that was cheap. I had to go all over the place to find out what the lengths of the motorways were and then somewhere else to find out what it was actually going to cost. But eventually, the pro-transmission gully callers won Simon Barnett over on News Talk ZB. I always said roads were great and electric <laughs> vehicles were useless. Now, while he was only joking there, the environment and carbon emissions weren't raised at all on his show that day, even though the Prime Minister had raised it when cutting the transmission gully ribbon. In her monthly letter from the editor last weekend, the Dom Post's Anna Fifield told her readers, I got quite a lot of comments from people complaining we'd be better off supporting sustainable modes of transport. But the only question that was being asked in the media on the day Transmission Gully opened were, was it faster, was it smoother, was it safer than the old road, which is of course still there carrying cars as well. 
Now, as ZB's Simon Barnett noted, the Dom Post had reporters with stopwatches on the roads on day one of Transmission Gully. TVNZ's breakfast show that same day also sent reporters on a commute from Carpety Race. Abby has made it. Sorry. Are you there, Abby? Oh, oh. she's there. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here. I mean, I even had time to make myself a quick cup of tea. Abby Wakefield beat her colleague Jess, who took the old road, but was less than three minutes behind her when she pulled into TVNZ's car park. 34 minutes? 34 minutes. That was a quick cup of tea that Abby made there. So 34 minutes for Jess and 30 minutes for Abby. Yeah. Look, there's really not much in it at all. But Jess ended up recommending the train as well. But I would vouch for the train as well, because it's something we all need to be considering, more public transport... Check out the coastline. Stay off the gully. And almost alone in rejecting the new road out loud in the media last week was RNZ Nights host Brian Crump speaking on the eve of Transmission Gully's opening. You know, I see it as something of an environmental disaster, committing much of Greater Wellington to the same sort of urban sprawl and traffic congestion Aucklanders are now slowly beginning to try and get themselves out of. So the best part of a billion and a half dollars that now isn't available to find alternatives to the car. But the oil tanker is now going to be even harder to turn around. Now, while most of the media celebrated getting more cars into the capital more quickly from up the coast last week, they also seized on the possibility of fewer places to park them in Auckland. On-street parking on dozens of main roads could be taken away. In its place would be more public transport infrastructure, like footpaths, mobility spaces, bikes and bus lanes. And after Auckland's councillors voted to consult on all this, ZB's main voice of the motorist, Mike Hosking, misleadingly condemned the move like this last Monday. Uh, You'll notice on Friday Auckland Transport also were going to go ahead with their removal of hundreds of kilometres of parking. So all that consultation was the usual crap. They just say they're consulting to fob the suckers off before they bowl ahead with the agenda anyway. But Mike Hosking's main beef that day was the hike in price of some new petrol cars under the government's clean car discount policy, which he condemned as mad. Now, when that kicked in on April Fool's Day, fresh stats were released showing more new cars were sold in March than in any other month ever. And the top three of those were all gas-guzzling double-cab utes. Now, that same day, public transport fares were cut in half temporarily to ease the cost of living, and Air New Zealand announced it was seeking to raise more than the price of two transmission gullies in new investment, and that would include another government contribution. But rail advocates said there was nothing for climate-friendly passenger rail, and the timetabled passenger services from Wellington to Auckland and Picton to Christchurch had been quietly canned last December because of COVID by Kiwi Rail. Now, the vast bulk of that slew of stories about planes, trains and automobiles recently zeroed in on the speed, the price and the convenience for users. But, as Hayden Donnell now reports, another story this week put all that into a bit of a different context. Scientists say humankind can still avoid a climate disaster, but it is now or never for a strong global response. In the third part of its report, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has given what's in effect a final warning to governments to move to a low-carbon economy and society. That's Samantha Hayes on News Hub at 6 reporting the dire findings of the latest IPCC report on climate change, which echo the dire findings of the last report and the one before that. Politicians have a poor track record of acting on those findings, to say the least. UN Chief Antonio Guterres has called this latest report a file of shame cataloguing the empty pledges that put us firmly on track towards an unlivable world. 
Or as Massey University professor Ralph Sims put it on RNZ's Morning Report, We've been dragging the chain for the last five IPCC reports. OK, so what do we need to do most urgently? Well, the transport is the one that's growing fastest and that gets a lot of the um, uh, media time. Helpfully, this latest report includes a summary for policymakers on how they can go about redeeming themselves and finally making those now-or-never changes. When it comes to the topic Sim sees as most urgent, transport, it prescribes increases in housing density to cut back car dependency, along with investment in public transit, walking and cycling infrastructure. You'd think our media companies would be right behind those policy goals. After all, many of them have committed to taking climate change seriously. In 2019, Stuff, the New Zealand Herald, TVNZ, RNZ, Newsroom and The Spin-Off took part in a week of special climate change coverage for the event Covering Climate Now. Stuff has a dedicated climate section and The Herald has reporters which ably spell out the science on global warming. But whenever our central or local governments actually try to reform transport or housing in line with those IPCC recommendations I mentioned earlier, the coverage tends to go like this. Auckland Council is drawing up a radical plan to remove parking on many of the city's roads to make way for more bus lanes and cycleways. That's the Herald introducing a story on the council's actually comparatively modest plan to remove parking on 3.25% of its roads over 10 years. Paris, by contrast, has removed 70,000 car parks, or 50% of its total number, in around three years. But the Herald was far from alone in being incredulous at Auckland's less ambitious goals. This is Morning Report's Corin Dan talking to Auckland Transport's Andrew McGill about the prospect of parking being repurposed to allow for more frequent bus services and cycle lanes. But what we're saying to people, and the reason we're doing this now, is in response to government changes which are removing parking minima from council. So, so but, but I mean, you're essentially saying, are you going to be, you're, you're saying to those people, sorry, you're not allowed to have a car. That's quite a big decision for you to make. We're not saying you're not allowed to have a car, but we're not. what we're saying is... They have nowhere to park it. Two days later, Dan talked to mayoral candidate Viv Beck about the proposals. Well, let, let me flip it around. Maybe uh, the politicians are just too scared and that AT, in fact, is, needs to take this hardline approach because you can't have a few holdouts... I'm being the devil's advocate here. A few holdouts on, on parking on roads, a few businesses holding up key public transport. Now, I'm no professional theologian, but decarbonising transit and creating safer spaces for vulnerable road users doesn't seem like the traditional purview of Satan and his flock. Still, this style of coverage has been par for the course when it comes to climate action. When the government and National put forward a bill last year enabling the type of dense housing prescribed by the IPCC, RNZ's morning report was more concerned at the prospect that constructing new buildings would mean dealing with the demolition waste from the old ones they're replacing. If your neighbour pulls down their house to build three new ones, where will the waste go? There's no evidence the government has thought this through. Elsewhere, the Herald dusted off a familiar phrase to describe the bill. Auckland Council is ratcheting up its opposition to Labour and National's radical plans for greater intensification. All this is relatively tame compared to the coverage authorities get when they try to build bike paths or really any facilities that will stop cyclists being run over quite so regularly. Here's News Talk ZB's Kerry McIver talking about a cyclist protest that briefly blocked Auckland's Harbour Bridge. Well, what seemed like thousands of the hooers coming from everywhere. If you've seen the mice, in Australia, you know, the hordes of mice sweeping through the farms. If you can imagine 
mice in lycra and on bikes. That's what they looked like. When the government did propose to fill one glaring gap in that cycle network and create a pedestrian and cycle path over the Waitamata Harbour, the proposed project was widely condemned in the media for its poor benefit-to-cost ratio of 0.6 or 60 cents on the dollar. But as you heard earlier, a roading project with the exact same BCR, Transmission Gully, hasn't quite got the same treatment, despite the fact that unlike the cycle bridge, it will lead to increased carbon emissions in the longer term. Projects which increase carbon emissions and deliver a benefit-to-cost ratio that would generate damning media criticism if attached to a cycleway get coverage like this. Ah, John, it's not very often you get excited about roads, but it was so smooth and it just, it was so nice to drive on and everyone around me, I think you could kind of sense the excitement. Not, I think everyone's just excited that it's finally here, but in terms of the driving on the road, it was incredible, it was so nice. That's TVNZ covering the opening of Transmission Gully and what was a day of almost unalloyed joy, Brian Crump excluded, over the project. The media talks a big game about climate change being the defining issue of our time. But when the rubber meets the road, the people most incensed at the prospect of change often take centre stage, and what the IPCC says is an unworkable status quo gets reinforced. Auckland University researcher Kirsty Wilde says that's creating a growing chasm between what's seen as reasonable in the media and even the bare minimum action required to credibly address climate change. Yeah, it has been um, really surreal, particularly over the last few weeks where we've had things like you know, record rainfall in Auckland, basically the insurance industry saying it's already unaffordable for us, you know, what's happening. Over the last year, there were serious conversations about whether we could actually effectively rebuild Westport or whether we, we have to move it. And so you have reports like that next to the parking supposed kerfuffle, totally unselfconsciously with no reflection on why this is an important issue for climate. You know, there's, there's, there's a really important role for journalists in helping us to tease out what's the really important thing to be worrying about at this point. The Herald's Simon Wilson is one reporter who regularly puts his coverage in the context of climate change. He talked to us about why that's rare and what can be done to fix the situation. It is, it's not that there's a group of people who are sitting in a newspaper or a television uh, executive suite and steering every element of the news and deciding we're not going to cover climate change. But there is an ethic in newsrooms, in my experience, that suggests that your coverage is responsive to immediate events. And that includes responsive to people who shout the loudest. If somebody's complaining, this will get them reading that tends to rise to the top in in decision-making. That's the first part of it. Uh, The second part, I think, is that I don't think the climate crisis is well understood as a crisis, and it's certainly not understood as a crisis that will get a lot of people reading. Uh, So we don't treat it as such. Do you think that there's even an, an awareness sometimes that when you're reporting on transport or when you're reporting on housing, these are connected to climate change? I think there's a whole lot of ways in which disconnects occur well, one of the most obvious ones is not directly a climate one, is property values. We report property values going up and we don't relate it to, to the social issue of rising numbers of people on the social housing waiting list. Those things are directly related, but we treat one as a, an issue that will be great for some people and not so good for others. And we treat the other one as bad for everybody and a failure of a system. But that failure is caused by the rising property values. The same thing happens in coverage of 
climate crisis issues. And there's a very good example in Auckland right now, a uh, proposal to uh, create priority lanes for buses, also bikes, but mainly for buses on main roads. And the consequence of that is car parks taken out. That's an entirely sensible approach to climate change, and it's cheap to do, you know, and will have relatively minimum disruption on, on people's lives. In its essence, is it actually bad reporting that we are not putting things in their appropriate context, and we are not really fully explaining uh, these issues in our news stories? I think it's probably true. The climate crisis, we've been told this week by the IPCC, uh, is extremely urgent. A whole lot of our thinking needs to change now. We've got, you know, again in Auckland, we've got a plan that will take another 10 years or so to uh, put in a light rail line from downtown to Maungari. If, if, if our plans are going to take 10 years before they come to fruition, all we're doing is delaying climate action. I think one of the problems that we have is that we find it very easy to get caught between, well, there's this side and there's that side, and we'll report with both sides, and um, that's called news coverage. One example I know about, because I'm working on it at the moment, is the light rail proposal in Auckland. You very rarely hear from the people of Mangari in the media anyway, whereas the shopkeepers of uh, Dominion Road or, or uh, downtown and Queen Street get heard from all the time. Does it speak to another media bias, which is that we have we elevate the perspective of, of, of predominantly of the powerful and the privileged, and we have better connections to the people that can afford spokespeople and associations to re- represent their interests? Not just people who can afford spokespeople. Uh, it's people who are confident in using the media, who feel that it's there for them. That puts a, an onus on, on us in the media, in my view, to work harder to find those other voices uh, upset about this, but not that, or or not upset, because a bus full of people is the public. One or two people wanting their car parks uh, are also the public, but they're not the only public at all. How do we report that opposition in a more responsible way? You know, you can't treat every news story with, with by attaching a full-blown analysis of everything to it, but where there are climate implications for uh, something that's been announced, a policy or or, uh, or whatever... I think that needs to be stated. We can paint a picture of how to make a better world out of this. Climate, the climate crisis is an opportunity. All crises are opportunities. What are the ways in which we make society better, uh, given that we have to change anyway? Can we, in the media, credibly say that we are taking climate seriously? Can we go ahead then with coverage that rubbishes many of the changes that the IPCC says are absolutely necessary to address climate change? If we do understand that, we've got to be always asking ourselves, how does that impact on everything else we do? Holding governments to account, um, holding councils to account for their, not just their fine words about the climate, um, how do their policies impact? What is the relevance um, of this proposal to the climate crisis? If we have a mindset of asking that question always, then I think we'll make real progress. Hey, thank you so much for joining me, Simon Wilson. Thank you. Hayden Donnell there talking to the New Zealand Herald senior writer Simon Wilson about how the media report transport and the environment usually as two different things.
Every year, the international research company Edelman surveys trust in various institutions, services, governments and companies in 28 countries. And in almost all of them in recent years, it's recorded an annual decline of trust in all sources of general news and information. Now, earlier this year, the company's chief executive, Richard Edelman, presented the results of its latest survey, and they weren't good for the media. Here we go. We believe that we are in a new low level of distrust in the world. Media and government today are seen as divisive. They are locked in a cycle of distrust. New sources have failed to fix their problem of trust. We see this as an airplane slowly losing altitude. Fake news is the core problem, and the extent to which social media has polluted the bloodstream is evident. Poisoned bloodstreams and planes preparing to plunge, these are not good images for our media. Now, New Zealand wasn't one of the countries in that survey released in January, but this week, a local survey by an affiliate of Edelman, PR company Acumen, found that trust in our media had dropped to just 41%, well below the global average of 50%. Alarming stuff, and it was reported in several news media outlets, including RNZ. Business Desk, for example, headlined the finding that most people surveyed considered media a divisive force for our society, not a unifying one. And pollster and pundit David Farris suggested on Twitter, increased government funding of our news media was behind the reported plunge in trust. All worrying, if true... But the full report from Acumen actually tells a very different story. That figure of 41% for trust in our media, that's for all media, including social media and not just news media. And a chart inside the full report shows that trust in media has actually risen steadily every year since 2017, when it was only 29%. This year, when Acumen asked people which source for news they trusted, 58% said traditional news media, a much higher proportion than Edelman got in the US, Japan or Australia, and far greater than the 19% of Kiwis who said they trusted social media. 61% said they believed information from news media in New Zealand, again, much better than Edelman's global average, and that majority considering Kiwi media divisive, Well, the fine print in Acumen's report said that question was only put to half of the sample. Now, that prompted us to put a question to Acumen. What was the sample size? Because it's not in their report. And when were people surveyed? No answer on either question yet from Acumen. Now, 46 countries in the world are surveyed for trust in news every year by the Reuters Institute for the Study of Journalism. And there was better news in its most recent report for 2021, concluding that trust in news actually grew during the pandemic, especially boosting news outlets known for reliable reporting. Now, sadly, New Zealand wasn't one of the countries that count in that research. And partly because of that, the Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy at the Auckland University of Technology has been doing its own survey of trust in New Zealand media since 2019, using the Reuters one as a template. Now, first time out, Horizon Research found that more than half of respondents said they can trust most of the news most of the time. But last year, that slipped to just under half. And while two-thirds trusted the news they personally chose to consume in 2019, and people were more sceptical than those in other countries about what they saw on social media, last year, that slipped as well. Now, since then, New Zealand's had lockdowns, vaccine passport and mandate debates, anti-government and anti-COVID protests, and much more misinformation and conspiracy theories online. There's been an appreciable uptick in animosity towards the media and individual journalists, even death threat rhetoric and, occasionally, assaults. And there's been suspicion that increasing government influence on the media might be flowing from growing public funding for it.
So what then has been the impact of all that on trust? Well, this year's AUT Trust in News survey came out last Thursday, and it found that general public trust in news media is still shrinking. 45% were prepared to say they trusted the news this time. So, do three annual falls in a row mean time to panic? I asked the lead authors of the report, Dr Mary Malilati and Dr Greg Treadwell from the Auckland University of Technology Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy. It is certainly time to, to worry about not just the nature of the environment that the media has to operate, the news media has to operate in today, but actually the audience, which appears in ongoing decline. The trust in news in New Zealand has fallen, and the fall is ongoing and steep, and it's now down to forty-five percent. I said, you know, it'll be if we go on at this rate in eleven years' time, just eleven years' time, no one will trust the news at all. Now that's flippant and not adequate as to understand the situation because there is, I think, a difference between what people say they trust and what they actually do. Um, so yeah, it's time to worry. But Maria, given that there has been uh, so much turmoil in the last couple of years, uh, you know, in the global context, is it perhaps? predictable and and not necessarily a bad thing that the overall fall in trust wasn't any greater than what you've recorded. A Reuters report which we benchmark ourselves against uh, showed our trust in news going up six percent and we have a decline so that gap we had is getting uh, smaller and smaller so it's one percent now. I think also what's happening here is that you know think about we have been in a crisis for a few years now crisis reporting all the time so maybe the people perceive that they're doing the government's bidding because they are reporting on the issues which are important. But Greg, uh, this survey interestingly asks people specifically which sources and how much trust they have in the sources they use. Uh, were you surprised by any of those results this year? Because uh, there was a decline for most of the, the mainstream media companies, wasn't there? Uh, yeah, there was. But funnily enough, it's social media that's holding uh, but, but mainstream news organisations in New Zealand are um, falling uh, in trust levels. So n- not not surprised by any particulars, except RNZ slipped a bit. RNZ is at the top of the tree still, uh, but slipped a bit uh, itself. So um, not surprises, but ongoing concerns, I guess. Well, one of the trends you picked out in previous surveys was that uh, the, the perception that that news reporting and opinion was becoming a bit blurred and that possibly the prevalence of opinion in mainstream outlets had kind of, in the eyes of, of the people surveyed, had corrupted the news, slightly damaged trust in the news. Uh, Miria, do you still think the, the survey's recording that? Yes, uh, we see still, you know, the, the, the uh, qualitative comments, what we received, you know, the first, uh, the reason for the mis- uh, or distrust of the news was the government funding. The second biggest category was this bias and opinion opinions in the news and it came strongly uh, again in those comments we received that people say that just give us the facts just give us the data we don't care about your uh, you know opinions we don't uh, want the biased reporting so it's still coming strongly through so i think you know this is if you think of what can the media do better uh, it is perhaps that you know somehow we still have to make clear that what is opinion and what is the news. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. One person in the survey happened to be a former journalist and said uh, and shared that opinion. So along with all the others saying, the former journalist said, look, I, I don't think people actually understand uh, where the line is between opinion and news reporting. And that's an interesting response. And I think, Greg, it can be frustrating because often clear about 
what it is that leads them to say that, or you know, perhaps yeah. po- pointing to outlets that perhaps aren't really the ones responsible for that. Absolutely. Um, and the first thing that we need to sort of understand about this type of research is that it's self-reported. But if they really trusted the news to the levels that they're reporting, they, you know, they wouldn't open a newspaper, would they? <laughs> no, uh, and, yet, right. and, and yet they do. So um, editors around the country were very strong on this when the pandemic first hit. They saw, um, in some cases, traffic to their news websites quadruple because people were returning to mainstream media, if you like, for reliable information. So they say they don't trust it, but when the chips are down, they turn to it. But when you build trust as a news organization, you often turn to notions like transparency and understandably, mm-hmm. right? But but there's a sense that the the mistrust in news is connected to this wider mistrust of social institutions. So from the government down, right? So uh, some people confuse the media with the government and th- think the media is somehow part of the government. And that prompted us to ask, you know, how well do you understand, do you think, how well do you understand how a journalist comes to their story, how a story is developed, you know, because maybe some people we thought just think that journalists sit down and write their own opinion all the time. So we wanted to know how well do people believe they understand uh, our journalistic processes. And, and you know, I think it was 50 something percent, just over 50 percent said, yeah, yeah, I understand it. Well, <laughs> you know, this is self-reported stuff, right? Which is why beneath and behind this annual survey, we're looking into some of the more nuanced issues around what is the, the you know, how does the fall in trust relate in the news media relate to the fall in trust in other social institutions? So, And Maria, you mentioned that in the backdrop of all of this, of course, there's been a lot of emergency type reporting going on in the middle of a pandemic. Um, but one fascinating finding from this, 2.7% cited news reporting on the COVID pandemic, the health information, vaccine mandates, etc., as a reason for their mistrust. Interesting that uh, a proportion that low would actually say it is that specific issue. You know, the sort of stuff we've seen protesters waving cards about. Uh, only a very small number of people actually believe that that's something that undermines their trust in the media. Yeah, that's a small percentage, but of course, uh, it is also a small group uh, of those who gave some qualitative comments. So it, we need to take that in with a pinch of salt a little bit. But it's, uh, yeah, it, it didn't come across as a main kind of a reason. Uh, so that was actually really helpful. Uh, what was also interesting to me was that we found out that, you know, 75% of those who we asked uh, about the news and their news consumption say that they are interested in news and they're consuming the news. The, the interest is high, but the, that tiny percentage actually think that, you know, they don't, you know, they, mis, they mistrust because of the COVID or something information. It's good. It's good. Yeah, positive. And another positive, I suppose, is, Greg, uh, the question that you've asked in all the surveys about the willingness to pay for news. Uh, so one finding there, 22% of people uh, responding saying they had paid for online news content or accessed a paid online news service uh, given I don't think you would have had a response that high um, you know when you began the survey uh, in 2019. Um, there's been I guess some gentle pressure back to the market from news orgs uh, news organizations as they put up paywalls and and develop s- subscription models and and other ways to get and even donations just appealing to readers put some money in our bank account please journalism's important you know maybe this pressure back on the audience is starting to make uh, people realize that it isn't a lot of money right it, it, honestly just that yeah 22 percent of the people here say that they have been uh, paying for online news 
Uh, so it is uh, higher than uh, international average. Uh, it sits somewhere about 17%. These results were actually a little bit surprising to me. They, uh, they sit higher than I was expecting. So the, it shows that people are gradually starting to pay for the news, which is good. Uh, the Edelman Trust Barometer is another survey that comes out annually, 28 countries or so, um, not as extensive as the Reuters Institute survey, which is getting up towards 50 countries now. But it's just interesting, their chief executive presenting their annual results uh, earlier this year, um, referred to what you referred to earlier, Greg, that kind of linkage in the public mind between what the government's up to and the media. But he said the media business model has become dependent on generating partisan outrage, while the political models become dependent on exploiting it. Uh, Whatever short-term benefits either institution derives, it's a long-term catastrophe for society. Distrust is now society's default emotion, with nearly 60% inclined to distrust. Given that the people that did leave comments did want to make this linkage between government influence and the media, do you think what he cited there is actually something that does now apply to New Zealand if if, uh, the survey uh, results that you've got bear out? I I think you've, you know, you've nearly put your finger right on on it. I think that is, we like to think we were going to be insulated from a lot of the um, uh, spread of of misinformation, disinformation, media mistrust. Uh, But, but, you know, we, we are now a country that lives with terrorism attacks that we once thought we'd never need to. And, and, and you know, so yes, I, I, I think that our borders culturally have been down and that these things are starting to appear. The media works hard to be trustworthy and yet these results show this disconnect between uh, the way that people understand the media and the way they see the wider world. So Yeah, Maria, when Richard Edelman says uh, the media business model has become dependent on generating partisan outrage... I mean, that's that's not true of our news media or the, the mainstream sources, for example, uh, that are listed that, that uh, you get people to respond to in your survey. You go through them. Uh, when you see some of the comments that people left uh, when they responded to you, uh, for example, um, this, this one, a male, 55 to 64, uh, saying... The greatest danger to news media in New Zealand is government funds and grants. They buy journalists and editors. Another danger is allowing interview access only to compliant journalists. I mean, what do you think you're going to see next year in the survey? If we come out of the crisis, and we've been, as I said, we've been a couple of years in the crisis, crisis situation, and we have been crisis reporting. Perhaps when we come out, uh, there is a change uh, in how the people perceive the news and the trust in news. Uh, because we saw in a Reuters survey, they, they did the same dip. So they did three or the 11 years, I think the trust was f- uh, falling. And then uh, they uh, last year, they picked up uh, 6% on that international average. So maybe uh, after the, we move away from a crisis and crisis reporting, we start to see pick up in a trust. But uh, I don't know. I'm not predicting anything because this seems to be swaying from one extreme to another. <laughs> That was Dr. Maria Milati and Dr. Greg Treadwell from the Auckland University of Technology Centre for Journalism, Media and Democracy. And they were the lead authors of the annual survey in Trust in News in Aotearoa, New Zealand. You can find a link to that full survey and more of what Greg and Maria had to say about it in the online version of the story. That's on the MediaWatch page of the RNZ website or you'll find it in our podcast feed.
And finally on Media Watch this weekend, as we heard earlier, the pollster and pundit David Farah was one of those pondering the reported decline in trust in news here and whether the government's funding of the media might be part of the problem. And he was also worried about whether that was a factor in coverage of efforts to boost Māori representation in local government in Rotorua. And he told Sky News Australia all about that last week. The most amazing thing isn't that they're trying to do this, but there's been almost no media coverage of it. You would think a law change saying, let's throw out one person, one vote, let's change the most fundamental aspect of democracy would be a front page story. It would be on the six o'clock news. It would be debated by everyone. I can confidently predict that your viewers will know more about it than the vast majority of New Zealanders. Now, that's unlikely. It's only Sky's contrarian columnist and host Robert Bolt who's concerned enough about that issue to give it much airtime on his own show Across the Ditch on that channel. But Bolt had his own theory about this, which he wanted David Farrer to confirm. There's a suggestions that government funding of newspapers makes them less reluctant, uh, more reluctant to criticise the government or any sort of totemic issue of the left. What, what's your view? And David Farrow went on to tell Sky News Australia it was all to do with the government's public interest journalism fund. There's $55 million being given to journalists through New Zealand On Air, and you have to sign up to what they call their treaty partnership approach, which is things like it shouldn't be one person, one vote, but that there should be co-governance, etc. So you've got a huge reluctance of media to actually dive into these issues. Now, he's not the only one saying that the Public Interest Journalism Fund's $55 million for the news media buys their compliance, especially on Treaty of Waitangi issues. But during that chat on Sky News Australia last week, there was a revealing moment when the host, Andrew Bolt, showed a still image of one such protest. Prominent in that picture was Rotorua Post journalist Felix Damarai with a notebook and pen in hand reporting on the protest for the paper. And this week he was surprised to find out that David Farrer had said the proposed local voting change had gone virtually unreported. He posted a string of the stories that he himself had done in past weeks and months, all available for free on the NewZealandHerald.co.nz website, the second biggest website in the country. And a further irony, Felix is the local democracy reporting service reporter in the region, whose post is paid for from the Public Interest Journalism Fund, and a key requirement of that job is to report on local politics and council issues, which would otherwise probably go unreported. Well, that's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend, but we'll be back again with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night, talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show with Midweek Media Watch. And we'll be back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.